setting fire to the stoner stereotype, sparking up candid conversations with cannabis researchers, entrepreneurs, and advocates. Educator, author, and advocate Dr. Mitch Earlywine is here to tackle the burning issues. CannabisRadio.com presents a no-holds-barred platform that seeks to redefine and revolutionize the entire scope of the cannabis culture while opening the door for more to join the cannabis crusade. Please welcome the host of Burning Issues, Dr. Mitch Earlywine. Hey, welcome to Burning Issues. I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine. As many of you know, I'm Professor of Psychology and Director of Clinical Training at the University of Albany. I'm the author of the book Understanding Marijuana, published by Oxford University Press. I write the Ask Dr. Mitch column for High Times, and I'm chair of the executive board of the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. Here on Burning Issues, we're here to burn away the myths with science. We'll have our regular segment, Self-Compassion in the Art of Activism, and today we're going to talk with Dr. Kevin Hill about his new book, Marijuana, the Unbiased Truth about the World's Most Popular Weed. Dr. Hill is at McLean Hospital, and he's part of the psychiatry department at Harvard Medical School. Thanks so much for joining us, Kevin Hill. Thank you for having me on, Mitch. Sure thing. Can you give us a feel about you know how you came to write a book about cannabis? Sure. So I've been interested in marijuana for a while. I think I first got interested in a, in a clinical way about five years ago or so at McLean. I was working in the partial hospital for people who have come out of detox, usually for alcohol or opioids. And what I found then was probably half of those patients would tell me that there was a time in their lives where they were using marijuana daily for years. And I wondered if we were able to get in there at that point with a treatment that works, whether it be talk therapy or medication, how many of those folks would you see down the road? And I think that kind of got me interested clinically. I started doing clinical trials at that point. But then in educating parents, teachers, other healthcare professionals, just coincidentally prior to the medical marijuana ballot initiative in Massachusetts in 2012, I really began to see that there was a tremendous gap between the science of marijuana and the public perception. And that got me thinking that there was a niche here for a book. That's excellent. i got to admit, when I first saw the title, The Unbiased Truth, I was really suspicious, but you really took an <laughs> even-handed approach, and I, I was uh, really pleased to write a blurb for you there. Can you tell me how you sort of came to some of your conclusions about medical cannabis? Yeah, so really, it, again, one of the things that I say, I try to be as data-driven as possible, and I have to say that my positions with medical marijuana have evolved a bit over time, really, in looking at the research. So I've looked at really every clinical trial that has involved various forms of marijuana or cannabinoids. And I think when you look at the data quite clearly, you see that although many people, most physicians, frankly, would like to dismiss medical marijuana as a sham, the reality is that there are some conditions for which there is good evidence to support the use of cannabinoids or marijuana, depending on what's available from the FDA. And for those conditions really are really five things. Number one, nausea and vomiting associated with cancer chemotherapy, number two, appetite stimulation and wasting illnesses like HIV. So those are the two FDA-approved conditions. There are two cannabinoids that are available that have those indications. But when you look at the data for the other medical indications, I think the, really the three strongest ones are, number one, chronic pain, number two, neuropathic pain, which is kind of a burning sensation that you get in your nerves, and then three, muscle spasticity associated with multiple sclerosis. I feel quite confident that drug companies will be able to get new cannabinoids approved for one or more of those three things 
within the next several years, and I know there are companies that are pursuing it, the data is actually pretty good for these, these uh, indications in the sense that there are multiple positive clinical trials, randomized controlled trials, for each of those three indications. I, I couldn't agree more strongly. And, and could you elaborate on the issue with spasticity? Because I think it's easy for folks to minimize that as a problem. Sure. So uh, patients that have multiple sclerosis have a lot of muscular problems, and spasticity is kind of a general unease or un- inability to control what your muscles do. And uh, really, of the three conditions that we talked about a second ago, when you look at the data for spasticity associated with MS, there are about 17, as I think there are, 17 randomized controlled trials looking at this. So there's rock-solid clinical data, and I know that the American Academy of Neurology really uh, echoed that same sentiment. So there's very strong data. I'm not a neurologist, obviously, but when you look at the data, it's quite strong, and therefore, it's not hard to imagine that one of the pharmaceutical companies will get approval for a new cannabinoid for that reason within the next couple of years. I do talk to these patients myself sometimes, and the spasticity is a big issue with sleep, and it can make the difference between a horrible day and a good day to not have those muscle spasms waking you up in the middle of the night. Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, I'm not saying necessarily that medical marijuana or even cannabinoids are necessarily first-line treatments for these indications, but you want to have as many options as possible. And, And I've seen it many, many times that doctors and patients work together and they try first-line treatments, second-line treatments, and you can easily get to a point for chronic pain, for example, where it does make sense to have a trial of, of medical marijuana. And again, given what is available from the FDA, there is a certain window where it does make sense to, to use medical marijuana at this point. It's interesting because I, I know so many folks to the right of you uh, who are really anti-medical cannabis and anti-cannabis in general, and yet so many to the left of you who are you know, eager to just free the weed in all, in all bases. Do you have a stand on decriminalization or uh, altering uh, recreational use laws? I, I do, I do. So the, the first point that you made is a good one, and it has been uh, uncomfortable at times. Certainly, you know, my take on the issue is that, as you mentioned, there are a lot of people who say marijuana is harmless. That's not true. Unfortunately, I do a lot of work in schools, and there are a lot of people who get into the schools before me and are really relaying the message that any marijuana use and you're doomed. That's not the case either, and kids know that, and I think that there's a credibility gap there. So what I say is that the answers with marijuana are often in the middle, and it's a very complex topic. So when you talk about uh, those policy issues, so decriminalization, for example, I actually agree that Decriminalization is a good idea. Small amounts of marijuana for personal use, I don't think, should be uh, subject to criminal charges. So the reality is when you look at the number of people who use marijuana, quote-unquote, responsibly, the numbers are quite high compared to alcohol, for example. I mean, most people who use alcohol, most people who use marijuana do it without a problem. So I think that if you're going to you're an adult and you want to use marijuana, I don't think you should be subject to criminal penalty. I think the problem that I have with some of the policies is that the implementation is not as good as it could be. We can talk about that in in more detail. When you mention legalization of the recreational use of marijuana, again, I'm not a big person who's in favor of government bureaucracy, but I think this is a case where you know, you have to look at this and say, this is the United States. As adults, we are allowed to make decisions every day to do things that are good for us or sometimes that are not so good for us. And I think this is a case where the same should be true. If somebody wants to use marijuana 
recreationally, I think that they should be allowed to do it. I think importantly, when you think about the policies, you also have to understand, and I'm sure your listeners know, that the majority of people in the United States are in favor of legalization or recreational use of marijuana. So I would rather get to work right now and try to craft policies that are going to work, that are going to give people what they want, while limiting the risks that are involved here. So I'd rather get out in front of it than get stuck with policies that don't work. And I think, unfortunately, in a lot of the states uh, that, you know, the 23 states in the district that have medical marijuana and then the four states in the district that have legalized recreational marijuana, a lot of the policies are just not as strong as they could be. And therefore, I'd like to think about ways that we can improve upon those policies. I know your book emphasizes some concerns about possession limits as one of the ways to improve policies. Do you have any apprehensions about folks owning an ounce? I, I, well, I, I think that when you talk about decriminalization, and, you, you know, again, people talk about possession of small amounts of marijuana, really in public, and that's where you're going to get caught with it, essentially. And so the point that I often make is that, again, a lot of things with marijuana, as you know, are not intuitive. To most people, an ounce is not a lot of something. You know, people that aren't familiar with marijuana, you know, they may think that an ounce is a small amount. But as you know, an ounce of a dried plant product is a considerable amount. You know, so again, people use marijuana in many forms, but people are familiar with joints. If you think about joints being typically half a gram to a gram, according to the World Health Organization, for example, an ounce of marijuana, that's 56 joints or so. So as I like to say, if you caught me walking around with three-quarters of an ounce in public, mind you, I think that, you know, that's probably not, most of the time if you caught me with a three-quarters of an ounce, it's probably not personal use marijuana. So I think that the spirit of the law would be better met if the limit were lowered. And so, again, that's one of the problems that I have. I think that, unfortunately, a lot of policymakers kind of look at what their neighbors have done and that sort of thing and copy. They're not very original sometimes. And I think that the one-ounce limit is a problem. I don't think, you know... Okay, actually, we i gotta got to take a break for our sponsors, and we're oh. going to get back to Dr. Hill's further thoughts on cannabis dependence, its treatment, and possession limits. We're talking to Dr. Kevin Hill from Harvard University, and thanks for joining us on Burning Issues. More Burning Issues coming up after we blaze through these words from our sponsors. Your connection to quality cannabis insurance services is spelled K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R. That's Karcher Insurance. We have worked with ventures like cannabis for over 60 years. We're proud to represent over 50 companies with tailor-made cannabis plans for owners just like you to insure your product, your plants, and your pursuits. K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R spells out their full-service insurance services, ranging from commercial to bonds, to personal, from life to health, and more. Contact the team at KarcherInsurance.com and let our experience work for you. That's K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R Insurance.com. Contact Karen and the team at Karcher Insurance at 1-844-421-3560. That's 844-421-3560. It's time to check in with Doc Rob and the Concierge for Better Living. We take a real, raw, inside look at healthier living while sharing great ideas and improvements for a better quality of life. The Concierge for Better Living will help informed, intrigued, and interested listeners like you make better choices for yourselves and your loved ones. The Concierge for Better Living with Doc Rob, only on CannabisRadio.com. 
Hi, I'm Montel Williams. Most of you know me as a talk show host, but I'm also an author, actor, single father of four, avid snowboarder, and I'm also a medical marijuana patient. Living with multiple sclerosis, I'm in pain every day. Medical marijuana is my last resort, and it helps me when all other drugs have failed. If you'd like more information about medical marijuana, you can contact the Marijuana Policy Project at mpp.org or call 1-877-JOIN-MPP. Time to fan the fire on some more burning issues, only on CannabisRadio.com. Hey, we're back with Burning Issues. I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine, and we're talking to Dr. Kevin Hill of Harvard Medical School, author of Marijuana, the Unbiased Truth About the World's Most Popular Weed. And Dr. Hill was elaborating on his concerns about folks uh, having more than uh, basically an ounce uh, in possession. Was there more you wanted to say on that, Kevin? Yeah, I, I just think that, again, to kind of summarize my concern with that, I think an ounce is a considerable amount of marijuana, um, and so possessing that in public, most of the time, I think that the, the question becomes, is that a personal amount for use? And, and I would say that the spirit of the law, while I'm in, in agreement with the idea that you should have the ability to carry small amounts of marijuana, I don't think an ounce is the best limit there. I would like to see that lowered. I think that if you lowered it to a quarter or a half or something like that, you would still meet the spirit of the law, but you would be... Uh, in, a, in a better sense, kind of protecting against the ability to um, distribute marijuana. So it sounds like public sales is more your concern than, than actual amounts so much. Uh, ab- absolutely. Again, it's one of those things that if you're doing what you want to do in the privacy of your own home, I don't have a problem with that. It's you know, the people that I see, unfortunately, often get in sticky situations with the law because they are, in fact, um, trying to sell. I got gotcha. you. And then I know you're extremely apprehensive about cannabis and DUI and that driving literature. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. So, again, while I'm in favor of the idea of legalizing recreational use of marijuana, there's some things that I would like to see ironed out, ideally, before we do that. And I think the driving issue is a big one. So right now we don't have the .08 blood alcohol content equivalent for marijuana. And probably more importantly, we don't have the technology to test for it in the field. So... Alcohol and marijuana are processed by the body in different ways. And so while in Colorado they're doing the best they can, they're drawing blood, and they essentially will say that if your um, blood THC level is above 5 nanograms per ml, then you're impaired. The problem is that if I use marijuana two days ago, let's say, a lot of it, I could still have a high level of THC in my blood, and it's not necessarily a good indicator for how impaired I am. So I think that that's kind of an issue. So I think that the, the sensitivity isn't what it could be in terms of testing. I know that people are very interested in developing breathalyzers. There are multiple companies working on that. Once that is done, you know, I'll feel a lot better about it. But I worry right now about the ability to prosecute people who are driving under the influence. Would you be more comfortable with a roadside sobriety test, much like the ones we have with alcohol, looking at nystigmus or touch your nose or walk a straight line or juggle, whatever it is? Well, that's what, that's what we do right now. I think that's a good piece of it. As with anything, you know, I would prefer to have both the roadside test plus the biochemical verification. I think it could be better. I mean, it's hard to make the argument that the test wouldn't be better if you had the equivalent for uh, the, the breathalyzer. Unfortunately, logistical aspects of drawing blood really are not great. And as we talked about, the, the, you know, the pharmacokinetics of marijuana are different, so that makes it difficult. So I, I do like the idea of testing, as you mentioned, coordination and things of that sort, but I, I'd like to have 
a bit more if possible. I think right now um, the threshold is not great. It's a little bit more difficult to get um, prosecuted for drug driving than I think it should be. It's certainly more difficult than it is for alcohol right now. I, I see what you mean. Um, and you've alluded to uh, folks in treatment. Do you feel like there's uh, a subset of folks who actually have marijuana dependence? Absolutely. So, again, I appreciate you asking the question. So this is something that is a, a sticky issue, really, in talking to really any audience that I talk to. There's no question about it. There are some people, it's about 9% of adults, 16 or 17% of young people who use marijuana and become addicted. Simple definition of addiction, repeated use despite harm. So the people that come in to see me are using usually multiple times a day, every single day, and they have problems with work, school, and relationships. Importantly, though, again, when you look at the numbers, I said 9% of adults, so most people who use marijuana don't have these problems. So I think, again, while I'm worried about people, more people becoming addicted if you were to legalize marijuana and young people using if you were to legalize marijuana, I think you can't ignore the fact that, like alcohol, most people who use don't have a problem. So I think that you need to think about policy in that way. I think you shouldn't craft your policy based upon what's going to happen for 9% of the population, for example. I think we can do a better job of treating those people or preventing them from becoming addicted while educating people properly about marijuana. I think that's the way to go. A lot of folks are apprehensive about what really qualifies as a symptom. So what do you, what do you mean by work, school, and relationships? Or, or how do those have to be troubled in order for it to, to be considered a symptom? Yep. So again, according to the uh, the psychiatric diagnostic manual, the DSM-5, you know, it's a more complicated definition. People need more and more marijuana to get the same effect. Um, you know, you develop th- that sort of tolerance. You you choose to use marijuana as opposed to engaging in certain responsibilities that you have, and that's where kind of the work-school relationship piece comes in. Most people that I see. Um, young people, for example, they are having some problem in one of those spheres that relates to their marijuana use. So they got suspended from school or they you know, haven't been showing up at work because they're using too much marijuana or if somebody's a bit older, you know, their wife may threaten to kick them out. So again, those are extremes. It doesn't happen for most people, but it is quite pronounced for some people. And I think that's where the, the waters get muddied with marijuana because, again, most of people who use marijuana don't have these issues. They're not really familiar. They may know somebody back in college maybe who they thought used marijuana too much, but in terms of the actual addiction that takes place, not a lot of people are very familiar with it, so it's hard to uh, kind of relate to that, I think. I find that if it's not like heroin with an outrageous withdrawal syndrome and things like that, people don't quite get it. Is that consistent with how you see it? I, I, certainly, things are much more pronounced with other drugs. So you talk about withdrawal, there's no question about it. When people are using opioids like oxycodone or heroin and they stop using abruptly, they're, they're dope sick, as they will talk about. They feel miserable. There is a physical withdrawal with marijuana if you're using enough of it, but it's certainly not to the same degree as you would see with opioids. I also think one of the things that makes it more difficult for people to understand the addiction is because, again, you're probably not going to do these, have these dramatic catastrophes take place to lead you into treatment. So people may uh, rob a CVS to get oxycodone, for example, or you know, they may have a, a, a car accident with alcohol or that sort of thing. Those things may be less likely to occur with marijuana, it's usually kind of a, a longer onset of problems, kind of a culmination of people just not 
making progress like they'd like to be. Maybe their job's not going like they'd like it to be or their relationship. So it's not as dramatic usually. So I think it's harder for people to understand that it does exist for, as you mentioned, that subset of people. And then you've alluded to treatment here. Do you have a favorite behavioral intervention for folks who are struggling with marijuana? I do, I do. So in my clinical trials, we've used cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, pretty effectively for people that use marijuana. It's kind of a tedious treatment, but what it involves is really talking with the patient, you know, when do you use marijuana? What are the situations that you typically will use marijuana? Why are you using it? And there are usually a handful of different scenarios that they describe. And for those scenarios, you want to really get in there and try to understand what's the thought process. And so CBT works. Importantly, though, I want to point out that the data shows that you can use a variety of behavioral treatments for cannabis use disorders. And it's really more about the duration, the length of treatment, and the intensity that matters more so than the type. But I'm partial to CBT because I've used it before, and it, it seems to work. Well, so for, it sounds like you're really kind of identifying high-risk situations, being more conscious about use, and essentially try and avoid the negative consequences. Is that a fair summary? Absolutely. And so, again, when we talk about CBT, we, we talk about the situations that you use in. What are the thoughts there? People will say, look, if I'm going to watch my favorite show, I have to, you know, I have to smoke before I watch the show, you know, that sort of thing. And then, as you mentioned before, what are high-risk situations? So anybody that may be coming into a situation where a lot of people may be using cannabis, if, that, if marijuana has been a problem for you, you should be thinking about that and just being prepared to encounter that kind of situation puts you in a better position to be able to avoid it if that's what's best for you. And so, like you said, just being cognizant of where things may be high risk is a, is a big piece of CBT. Well, we've had a delightful discussion here with Dr. Kevin Hill of Harvard Medical School, author of Marijuana, the Unbiased Truth About the World's Most Popular Weed. Well, Kevin, I got a feeling we'll have to do this again sometime, yeah. man. Yeah, no, it was fun. I appreciate it. You know, I appreciate the opportunity. All right. We're going to be back with uh, self-compassion in the art of activism. Please stay tuned. More burning issues coming up after we blaze through these words from our sponsors. InternetMarketingNinjas.com is the online dojo of the highly trained and skilled Internet Marketing Ninjas. Disavow documents, reconsideration requests, Panda and Penguin penalties. Let our superior SEO ninjas confront all of your link-related issues. The Internet Marketing Ninjas are equipped to master any marketing exercise, content creation, authorship, link building, PPC, and more. Plus, build more buzz for your brand with our social media marketing strategy. Discover all that the Internet Marketing Ninjas can do for you. Visit the online dojo now at internetmarketingninjas.com. Hi, I'm Montel Williams. Most of you know me as a talk show host, but I'm also an author, actor, single father of four, a fitness writer, avid snowboarder, and I'm also a medical marijuana patient. Like many of the million people who are living with multiple sclerosis, I'm in pain every single day. And sometimes my nerves are so raw that if you brushed up against me in an elevator, I'd scream. I can't sleep at night from the pain, and sometimes the spasms in my legs are so intense they will wake me up throughout the night. I've tried the strongest prescription medications available, and I'm going to tell you, they do not work. In fact, they leave me in a stupor, and most of the time, it's impossible to even live your life. Now, I've tried medical marijuana, and I'm going to tell you something, it works. If you'd like more information about medical marijuana, 
You can contact the Marijuana Policy Project at mpp.org or call 1-877-JOIN-MPP. Cannabis Commerce continues to cultivate new markets for adventurous entrepreneurs. CannabisRadio.com welcomes the adventurous to Cannabis and Commerce. Presented by GreenBiz.com, this show brings together cannabis entrepreneurs and industry experts to discuss today's important cannabis issues. Our discussions will chronicle the challenges faced by cannabis owners and the battles surrounding cannabis nationwide. Cannabis and Commerce, on demand anytime, only on CannabisRadio.com. Time to fan the fire on some more burning issues only on CannabisRadio.com. Hey, we're back. It's Dr. Mitch Earlywine, and thanks for turning in to Burning Issues. We've got our segment, Self-Compassion in the Art of Activism, a message for how people like you and me can live, learn, and love a little better. Today's segment is a controversial topic, busyness. Uh, My friend Bob Mankoff He's got a famous cartoon about busyness. It's a guy standing at a desk looking all busy and important in a suit, and he's got a phone in his hand. He's obviously trying to schedule something, and he says, how about never? Is never good for you? Bob's a delightful guy. He even named his memoir, How About Never? Is Never Good For You? So check out the book. It's a great read. Even Bob will confess, though, that sometimes he can't say no when it comes to taking on too many projects. When he really should say, how about never, he sometimes says, okay. And you know what happens then, he ends up too busy. I'm afraid we all know it. How many times have you looked at your to-do list and wanted to just burst into tears? Being busy has become like some kind of badge of honor now. It's like there's a competition to see who's got the longest to-do list. Friends who used to get together to just chat now spend their time to-do list waving, mine's longer, mine's longer. It's, it's as if somehow we're, we're having more to do in a day and that just makes us more important or valuable, but there's no Nobel Prize for busyness. There's still no busy category at the Academy Awards. And as busy as we get, we're bound to be missing something. I want to emphasize a better way. Taking time for yourself is a sign of wisdom, not weakness. I'm sure you've got friends telling you how busy they are, and they rattle off their list. And we usually all just nod. But what would happen if we said, wow, I'm sorry, or even, what a horrible way to live? If nothing else, I bet they'd stop droning on about their lists. But there are a few other things we can do to feel less busy and be less busy. First and foremost, let's talk about saying no. Every language has a word for no. It's there for a reason. Maybe you can say it. Maybe you can't. Practice makes perfect. Start with the little things and say no to them, and you can work up to the big things and say no to those too. If you can't say no, how about just a a delay? We all know how putting things off is a great way to never do them all. This might work in our favor for a change. And what if you said, Dr. Mitch told me, I can't say yes. I've got to have a 24-hour waiting period. Or you use some of my favorites like, send me an email. Or the classic, let me get back to you. My theist friends say, let me pray on it first. My new age friends say, I got to check my signal first. 
there must be something you've got to do first, and it doesn't have to be say yes. If you still want to do whatever it is after 24 hours, maybe you really could do it. Maybe you really want to. But if you've already forgot about it, or the relevant people never call, it's probably not worth your time. And what happens if it didn't get done? Or at least it didn't get done today. If nobody's going to die, it probably can wait. In addition to saying no, there's doing one thing at a time. You might still do as many things in a day, even if you're just doing them one at a time. And you'll probably do them better, and you certainly won't feel so busy. What happened to doing one thing at a time? I was watching a show with my wife and kids, and I turned as I was laughing at something, and I saw all three of them were toying with their gadgets. Recent data suggest over a third of people shop on their phones while they're on the toilet. Talk about multitasking and kind of missing out. If you're watching a comedy, eating a salad, and texting, odds are high you're missing the joy of one of them. And if you're driving too, well, then you're probably not going to be listening to us much longer. Now, we got saying no. We got just doing one thing at a time. What else? Delegating. I know it's a bad word, but what can you delegate? I bet you did two things today that someone else could have done. So ask someone else to do it. Beg someone else to do it. Pay someone else to do it. Does it really have to be you? If you don't have to do it, why should you? Last but not least, let's stop talking about being busy all the time. How much time does it take? And how busy and stressed and bummed out does it make everybody in the conversation really feel? So to set a good example, I'm actually going to shut up about it right now. I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine. My hearty thanks to producer extraordinaire Brasco and our guest, Dr. Kevin Hill. Thanks so much for joining us on Burning Issues. Follow your heart. Let the data be your guide. The opinions expressed on this Cannabis Radio Network program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff or management of Cannabis Radio Network. Any rebroadcast or retransmission without proper consent of the Cannabis Radio Network is prohibited.